0: That Chat is brought to you by Walters. Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters.
1: Walters is also the perfect place to watch football with friends, whether it be Monday, Thursday,
2: or the weekend. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Left-hander deals and a swing and a pop-up right side should end the inning. Bell and Garcia are there. Garcia will take charge. He makes the catch, and that's seven innings in the books for Josh Rogers. One, two, three, go to the Marlins. Here's a fastball ripped to right.
3: That's down and going all the way into the right field corner. Around third is Escobar. He scores as Soto slides into second and pops up out of that slide with an RBI double. Another multi-hit game with two hits tonight. And the Nationals played another here in the ninth. It's now Washington seven
0: and Miami one. And welcome to Nat Chat for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MadisonSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, in this season of no good Nationals starting pitching, it has not been often, been very rare, in fact, that a Nationals pitcher has even teased going eight innings. It's happened in amount of times that you can count on one hand this year. Max Scherzer did it. Patrick Corbin actually did it. Joe Ross did it. Just the fact that I'm bringing this up on a night on which Josh Rogers was pitching tells you all you need to know right now about how Josh Rogers is going. He was outstanding and what ended up being an easy breezy Nationals win at the Miami Marlins on Tuesday night. 7 won the final in Game 2 of a three-game series. That's now 62-89 and on the season. So a win away from making sure that they do not lose 100 games This season, But, you know, one of the inside jokes we've had here on the Nats Chat podcast this season has been Tim Shobers asking us, is this guy now the ace of the national staff? Is that guy now the ace of the national staff? Because obviously, since Max Scherzer got traded, nobody has been the ace of the national staff. But Mark, I ask you, is Josh Rogers now the ace of the national staff?
1: I don't know if he's the ace, Al, but I can say with definite certainty that at this point, with two weeks to go, Josh Rogers and Paolo Ospino are carrying the pitching staff. just like we saw we expected all along. Josh Rogers and Paolo Espino, who'd have thought it? I have no idea if this is legit or if this is just some bizarre flash in the pan, but it's been a lot of fun to watch. They're having a blast with it. He's having a blast with it. It's really been a breath of fresh air seeing this guy pitch, seeing the emotion that he plays with, the joy that he pitches with. And you mentioned how rare it is for them to have a guy go that deep in a game. They had not had a pitcher take the mound for the eighth inning, a starting pitcher take the mound for the eighth inning since Patrick Corbin on June 15th. We're talking three months since anybody had done that. It is astounding. And again, who would have thought that the one to break that streak would be Josh Rogers? And it was like no debate that he deserved to be back out there. He was cruising. It was absolutely the right thing to do. And and I do think it was the right decision to pull him when he got into a little trouble there. But what a great performance. And again, we're going to try to put this in the larger context, and I don't even know if we should. Just enjoy this for what it is. And if it keeps happening, great. If it doesn't, he'll always have this September surge.
0: So, Josh Rogers on Tuesday night, one run in seven and two thirds innings. Josh Rogers, the same Josh Rogers who the pitching starved Orioles said no thank you to, that Josh Rogers, one run in seven and two thirds innings. He gives up just five hits, a homer, a double and three singles. Issues two walks and a wild pitch. Has four strikeouts. He worked quickly again. He threw strikes again. 67 strikes versus 36 balls on 103 pitches. He made a great defensive play. He deals the one-two.
2: Swing so and a slow tapper right side. It's going to be a
0: fair ball. Rogers shovels with his glove to Bell and somehow gets the out. What a play. As uh, Rogers on a soft grounder toward first base by the speedy Jazz Chisholm Jr. made a diving backhanded scoop and flip with his glove to Josh Bell at first base for the first out in the bottom of the sixth inning. Mark, that might be the most impressive defensive play a Nationals pitcher has made this season. Like, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic in saying that. That was a really good play, again, with a guy in Chisholm who we know can run so quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that's the key is who's running down the line. It's one of the fastest players in the league, certainly on the Marlins. And I loved Roger's description of it. Honestly, I mean, he's super fast. So it's like, I didn't know if JB was going to come get the ball or not. And then I just said, well, I'm just going to commit to it and try this. So I just sprinted over
0: there and tried the glove flip and I was pretty sick. I was, I was hyped off that for sure.
1: And all out and then flips it from <laughs> straight from his glove to get him. And again, just the emotion. Sometimes we get on guys, especially pitchers for maybe having too much, wearing their emotions on their sleeves a little too much. Sometimes Gio Gonzalez could get in trouble with that. But there is a certain, if you know how to harness it and use it to your benefit, and I think that's what Josh seems to be doing here, it's really a lot of fun to watch. And the other guys feed off that stuff. They really do. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're playing good defense behind a guy who works like that, who works fast, who has so much energy, as opposed to somebody who's taking all kinds of time between pitches and nibbling around the strike zone and all that kind of stuff. I think there's something to be said for it. They love playing behind this guy and it shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, he does that body rocking thing, which is so, you know, odd, but it's funny and it's quirky, but it works. It kind of fits with the way he is. He very much comes off like he's just happy to be pitching at the major league level. It's not unlike what's gone on with our guy, the secret weapon Paulo Espino this season. Rogers gave up his run in the bottom of the 5th, a one-out homer by Nick Fortes to left field on an 0-2 pitch. So for Josh Rogers now, he's made four major league starts for the Nats this season, 25 innings of work. His ERA is 216. His whip is exactly one. Like you said, who the heck knows what any of this means? He has fattened up on some bad teams. Marlins on Tuesday night, he had a good outing at the Pittsburgh Pirates back on September 10th. His previous outing was also against the Marlins and uh, 8-6 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on September 15th. So you certainly can say, hey, this is a guy in September in a lost season doing well against some bad teams. And all of that is fair. But, you know, it's not like Josh Rogers is some top 100 prospect, okay? I mean, again, the pitching starved Orioles said no thank you to this guy. Josh Rogers was taken by the New York Yankees in the 11th round of the 2015 MLB draft this is just his age 26 season so in that regard this is not in a Spino situation this is not a Sean Nolan situation he is younger than those guys he is left-handed you know so there's something there I mean I guess if nothing else it's like all right you maybe have someone who next season can be your number six starter or your number seven starter like you know all is not lost if you have to go to Josh Rogers for a handful of starts at some point next year
1: Right. And I think the key there, like you said, is he's just 27 now. So this isn't some guy at the tail end of a career that never panned out. You know, there could still be a future. there. Now, he's had Tommy John twice, and that maybe played some role in the Orioles' decision to cut him loose. They didn't really give him a lot of opportunity to come back from the second one. So, you know, it's always a concern for anybody who's had those kind of injuries. But you're this young, there's not a ton of mileage on the arm he seems to be developing as a pitcher, learning new things. I mean, he was throwing a new changeup grip that he learned from Jim Hickey. I should point out here, we've talked about how you don't necessarily always hear Hickey's name brought up. It was brought up in this case, taught him a change up grip that he put into play for this game, worked well for him. So that's, you know, evidence of what Hickey's doing as pitching coach. He got a slider grip from Patrick Corbin last time out. So, I mean, he's he's adapting and having some success. And again, I don't know what it means, but He's not somebody that I would just completely write off because of the age, because he's left-handed, and if nothing else, for an organization that is starved for pitching depth, I'm not saying you go into spring training and say, oh, he's definitely one of their five to open the season, but he deserves to be in the mix if he can keep this up and finish out the season strong, and there's nothing wrong with having another guy who, you know, could figure into the mix because you know they're not all going to pan out, they're not all going to be healthy, so here's one more to add to the uh, to the equation.
0: I would bet Rodgers having undergone Tommy John surgery twice is seen as a positive by Mike Rizzo. They have a thing for guys who've (laughs) undergone Tommy John. It's amazing. I bet like when Rizzo was doing the pros and the cons of Josh Rodgers, that's in the pro column. Oh, he's had Tommy John twice. Oh, wow. Now we even like him more.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they've had a few. Sean Kelly had had two. Daniel Hudson had two. I'm trying to remember if they've had a starter who's had two Tommy Johns. Who am I forgetting here? But I don't know that it's legitimately in in the plus column, but they're certainly not scared off. Let's just say that by guys who've had it.
0: No, not at all.
1: Who knows how much mileage is left on the arm? Maybe there's a lot with his uh, twice-repaired elbow.
0: (laughs) 3535, or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Calfus at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535.
1: Hey Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K.
2: Just go to Indeed.com/slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Machado comes in. On three and one, the pitch. swinging a ground ball toward the middle. Fielded by Garcia. Shovels to Escobar at second for the force play to retire the side. So Machado able to get the one pitch he needed to get the ground ball and the out at second, four to six if you're scoring, to retire the side. No runs for the Marlins in the eighth. One hit, two walks, and three men left. At the end of eight in Miami, it's Washington four, Miami one.
0: Well, because Josh Rogers was so good, we had the rarest of rares for the Nationals on Tuesday night, a game in which only two relievers were used and the two relievers were only needed for one and a third innings. Man, that has not happened often this year. Andres Machado and Mason Thompson combine for one and a third scoreless innings. Machado comes into the game with runners on first and second, two outs, and the Nats nursing a 4-1 lead. So this is kind of a tight spot, and he does do the thing that so many Nationals relievers have done this season, that is walk the first battery faces. Machado issuing a two-out six-pitch walk of Brian De La Cruz, but Machado then did get the third out of the inning, and then Mason Thompson tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth. It was funny; Davey had Kyle Finnegan warming up in the bullpen because the Nats were only up four-one. They put up the three spot in the top of the ninth. And then Davey's like, all right, Kyle, you sit down. Mason, you take care of this. And Thompson did take care of this. Did a good job in that ninth inning.
1: He did. And I I don't know about you. I was waiting for that shot of the bullpen at some point with Finnegan having to warm again as soon as Thompson (laughs) got into trouble. And thankfully, it didn't happen. He retired the side. He looked good. He was throwing strikes. Machado walked a tightrope there in the eighth. I mean, he was one pitch away from walking in a run. And who knows what's going to happen at that point. But he made a big pitch, got the out, showed a lot of motion with it. He also had the uh, the 2-2 pitch right at the knees that was called a ball by Gabe Morales that Caber Ruiz was convinced was a strike. And there was a little back and forth between the two of them that you don't often see between a catcher and an umpire. The umpire like stepping in front of him and saying, no, that was low, that was low. But to Machado's credit, to Ruiz's credit... They battled back from that one. They got through the inning, and that was a pretty big out for a guy who has um, been asked to do, you know, probably more than everybody could have expected from him this year. And of the guys in that bullpen, he certainly hasn't been perfect, but he's probably at the higher end in terms of, uh, you know, who we've seen that you could say, okay, I, I can see some possibilities there. He's he's had some moments, so give him that.
0: Yeah, one of the guys who the Nationals got in the late July sell-off. Well, you mentioned Kbert Ruiz, another good game for him on Monday night. Dare I say, he is starting to bust out. So first of all, Davey elevated Ruiz in the lineup. Kbert Ruiz was the Nationals' number five hitter on Tuesday night, so that was interesting. And Ruiz delivered two for five with an RBI single and another single. Ruiz in the top of the second had a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch to left field. Ruiz in the Nats' four-run six had a one-out first pitch RBI single Left field. It was in the 8 7 10 inning loss at the Marlins on Monday night, in which Ruiz went three for five with two two run singles and another single. Look, KBR Ruiz is kind of like the new Starling Castro. I mean, all of his hits, it feels like, are singles, but he's getting a lot of hits right now. K-Bear Ruiz over his last five games now, 11 for 21 with a double, 10 singles, and no walks. I mean, this is Starling Castro like, but like we've said, he's a contact hitter. He's making more contact now. He's getting hits now. And the other thing, too, with Ruiz's night that I thought was interesting, Josh Rogers said that because he had worked with Kbert at AAA, there was a comfort there. We haven't always seen comfort with Kbert and some of these pitchers this season. It felt like you had that in effect on Tuesday night. So a good offensive game for Ruiz, and it certainly felt like a good receiving game for Ruiz as well.
1: Yeah, I think that did make a difference. Just the fact they know each other a little bit from having been in Rochester already, and they both talked about it afterwards. And, you know, at the plate— I'm not terribly worried here. I think the power will come. I think what's interesting here is we saw the way it started was a lot of pop-ups from him, just not making good solid contact, but still making contact. And you said, okay, eventually that's going to start to turn into hits. Well, we're now seeing it turn into hits, and those have been mostly line drive or ground ball singles with a, a little better contact. I would bet the next step, and they're running out of time for it to happen, but hopefully it does within the last week and a half of the season, the next step is going to be for those to start to be elevated a little bit and to start to hit the ball in the gaps and maybe even one or two over the fence. And I would not be surprised if we do see that. It seems to be following a progression. I think you can tell that the skills are there as a hitter, that he's not flailing away up there. He knows what he's doing. It's just a matter of kind of getting it all in sync. And hopefully there's enough time left for him to do it. But even if he doesn't, Look, with the Nationals, he's now hitting 278, 15 for 54. Not hitting for power, like you said, but making a lot of contact. He's only struck out four times in the 56 plate appearances. So, I mean, that's very good. And when it's all said and done, I think we're going to look at it and say, all right, I don't think we have to be terribly concerned about him. There was a point you're kind of like, well, let's we haven't really seen anything yet. Let's start seeing something. Well, now we're starting to see it. You can tell that there is something there from him.
0: Well, there is certainly something there for Juan Soto, who, again, got on base multiple times on Tuesday night. Two for four with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. And he reached base via error. Now, reaching base via error does not count toward your base percentage, but I was thinking about it because, you know, we've been monitoring the thing that you've been noting of Juan Soto reaching base four times in a game. I almost feel like this is that Seinfeld episode with Paul O'Neill, where Kramer says O'Neill will hit two homers but the second one ends up being a triple with an error. So does that really count as a second homer? Soto reaches base four times on Tuesday night if you count the error, but technically you're not supposed to count the error. So I'm not sure how we do the accounting on that, but bottom line, Juan Soto got on base a bunch more times on Tuesday night.
1: Officially by MLB standards, it does not count because it is an O for one when you reach on an error. But if you use baseball reference like I do, they give you the options. You can choose Times on base, not counting errors, and times on base, counting errors. So if you do that one, he, you can add another one to the list. And I guess it's now 23 times that he has uh, reached base four times in a game. But officially, it's uh, still only 22 because he only gets credit for three in this one, but keeps doing it all. I mean, the, <laughs> what was I was going to say, he did finally strike out for the first time in forever. I think it was 43 plate appearances without a strikeout. I mean, that's remarkable because Here's a guy who takes a healthy cut every time. This isn't Alcides Escobar up there just trying to fling his bat at the ball and make contact. I mean, Juan Soto is taking big cuts, but when he does and when it's in the strike zone, he's making contact and he just does not strike out. It's really been something to watch. And for whatever concerns there were early in the year, about, well, maybe it's an off year for him. No, it's really not. The OPS is up to 994. I mean, he's got a great chance to finish with a 1,000 OPS, which is just remarkable.
0: Yeah, Juan Soto now on the season. Major League leading 462 on base percentage, Major League leading 128 walks, had a big double in this game on Tuesday night in the Nats' three-run ninth, Soto, a two-out RBI double that he ripped into right field for that 7-1 Nationals lead. He had a two-out single to left center in the top of the first. He drew a two-out four-pitch walk in the top of the third. Yeah, the error on base percentage thing is interesting. That's been a debate in the analytics community for years, the idea of should you count reaching base via error? Because there are times when the batter has a lot to do with the air, right? Especially like if you're a fast hitter. Now, it's hard to, to like discern, okay, when did the batter impact the error taking place versus when did the batter have nothing to do with the error taking place? Like Soto reached base on Tuesday night due to a missed catch error on a Marlins reliever, Anthony Bass. So did Soto have anything to do with that? I don't know. Like, you, you know, you have to start playing like the role of mind reader. But for some guys, there is something to them reaching base by air. And there should be some sort of accounting for that. If nothing else, maybe you just keep track of how many times in a season a guy reaches base by air.
1: Right. Somebody like a Trey Turner, yeah. uh, Ichiro Suzuki in his prime, someone who can sort of force the issue, Jazz Chisholm, where if you're a third baseman or a shortstop and you got one of those speedsters up and they slap the ball to you, you better believe you're feeling the pressure to get the ball out of your glove as quickly as possible and get it over to first base because, you know, there's no margin for error. So, yeah, I think those are cases— where the batter can sort of help force the air. In this case, not as much, but, you know, we've talked about it. It's one of the, the great or bad things, I suppose, about baseball is that the numbers that we have grown accustomed to over all these decades, the things that we sort of hold as sacrosanct, like batting average and ERA and on base and all that, there are gray areas to it. It's not as clear-cut as we want to believe it is. There's a lot of interpretation from official scores and plays that, show up in a scorebook as one thing, but if you watch it, you can tell that there was more to it than a simple O for one or a 1-for-1. 1 1.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, Osiris Escobar had another interesting game on Tuesday night. Of course, he, and that 10-inning loss on Monday night, had an eventful game, two big defensive miscues. So they actually changed one of the errors to a non-error uh, after the game, but two big defensive miscues, although he did have three singles in that game. Escobar in this win on Tuesday night, one for four with a two-run double and a walk. Now, the two-run double was big. Three-run ninth, Escobar two-out, two-run double to left field for a 6-1 Nats lead. But I thought it was actually the walk in the inning in which the walk took place that is more interesting to talk about. So in the Nationals' four-run sixth inning, Alcides Escobar drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. He advanced to second on a wild pitch and then scored on that Kbert Ruiz one-out first pitch RBI single to left field as Escobar ran through the Marlins catcher, Nick Fortes, in a home plate collision.
2: First pitch, line drive, base hit, left field through the hole. Escobar is going to try to score. Brinson up with the throw, coming in toward the plate. It's up the line. Collision between Escobar. He plows over Fortes. The ball to the backstop, going to third. His and he's safe there. And Fortes is down, so is Escobar. The game is tied. There was a massive collision at home
0: plate. We certainly don't see many of those these days. We saw one in this inning. The collision, though, took place before the ball ever got to Fortes. Escobar crashed into Fortes. And then, and this was funny, and it's funny because nobody seemingly got hurt on the play. Escobar, like, just fell onto home plate to score the run. You know, like, it was just, he crashed into Fortes, ran him over, essentially, and then just dropped onto home plate to score the run. And maybe the best part of the whole thing was, because there were, like, 15 people in the ballpark, this felt like one of those games in which there were no fans last season. And so you heard the play happen. You heard, if you watched the game on TV, a loud grunt when Escobar collided <laughs> with Fortes. So there was a lot to take in with that play, I thought.
1: Yeah, that was something. We've seen two of them now in just this month alone. Remember the Stevenson play, a dramatic play against the Mets. That's right. At Nationals Park. Baez throw to the plate, the t- And you don't see this very much anymore, but like that one, this one was perfectly legal. This was a weird, fluky play. And what happened is because the throw was way offline, it pulled the catcher right into Escobar's running lane. So he couldn't do anything at all. All of a sudden, he's bearing down on the plate, and all of a sudden, the catcher gets right in his way, and there's nowhere for him to go. So there's nothing wrong with what he did. That is legal; you're allowed to do that. But a weird play you don't see very often, at least not at this point. And thankfully, they're both okay. You know, you're a little concerned about that, but that was a pretty major collision <laughs> when they both go down. You know, it's kind of like a like out of a Rocky movie, or like waiting for the which one's going to get up first on the, on the ten count. You know, is one of them going to get up? They're both going to stay down. Thankfully, they're all right, but Fortes had a wild game behind the plate. Three pass balls, that collision, he he struggled back there. I don't know the book on him, but that was a, an uncomfortable night for him behind the plate.
0: Yeah, the Marlins were very sloppy in this game. You mentioned the pass balls, bunch of wild pitches by the Marlins, three errors by the Marlins in this game. But the Nats did hit again. I mean, seven runs, nine hits, four walks. You know, I mentioned Escobar, who had some bad moments on Monday night, doing well on Tuesday night. Luis Garcia, another GOAT from Monday night. He had the base running blunder in the top of the 10th inning. But Garcia, in that game, did have multiple hits. And Garcia, on Tuesday night, two more hits. Two for four with an RBI single and another single. That Nats four-run six, he had a two-out RBI single that was hit hard up the middle, was unable to be handled by the Marlins shortstop, Miguel Rojas, for a 4-1 Nats lead. And then Garcia, in the Nats three-run ninth, a one-out single, To right field. You know, I know with Luis Garcia, it's been kind of up and down here, but it does feel like over these last few weeks, we've seen more of a pulse from him offensively.
1: Yeah. And it's not just against the lefties. He is starting to do some, you know, off right-handers as well. And I think this experience has been good for him. You know, last year he gets called up really unexpectedly. I don't think anybody ever planned for him to be in the big leagues last year, but when Starling Castro got hurt and given the state of things, uh, they felt like they might as well just do it you know, in kind of a a freebie of a season because it was a 60-game season. Well, this year, I think this has been good for him to get the prolonged stint up here, not be looking over his shoulder, just know, hey, this is my job for the rest of the year and maybe take some pressure off of him. And there's been some good, there's been some bad, but we've seen enough to know that there is something there in him. It's just a matter of showing it day in and day out and a little rough around the edges still, but he's 21 and he'll learn. I like the fact that as we're getting here towards the end, he looks like a better player now than when he first came up. We've talked so much about guys who've gotten worse after getting here, who've regressed for whatever reason. I think we can start to put him in that category of a guy who has improved, and that's a really encouraging
0: sign. (music) So, with this issue of Nationals player development, and you know, this really has emerged as probably the root cause, or at least the number one root cause for what we've seen with the Nationals this season. The bad player development, the bad farm system put the Nats in this position to begin with, probably more than anything else. Interesting news emerging on Tuesday afternoon. Multiple reports that the Nationals have fired a bunch of minor league coaches. Now, these are names that most people listening probably have never heard of, but these are significant names in terms of what these people did. Tommy Shields, high A manager, gone. Gary Thurman, outfield and base running coordinator, gone. Pat Rice, low A pitching coach, gone. Brian Rupp, double A hitting coach, gone. Do you take this, in fact, as a recognition from Mike Rizzo from the Nationals organization of our player development hasn't been good enough and changes need to be made? Or do you think this is more just, hey, inevitably, organizations make changes in the minors and it's not necessarily indicative of some larger thing going on?
1: Well, so there's always going to be some turnover of minor league staffs at the end of a season. And let's point out that this happened the day after the season, two days after the season ended for all but AAA. So single A, double A, They're all done now. So if you're going to make changes, now would be the time that you inform them of that. So I think some of that is just naturally going to happen anyways. But as we've been pointing out, this is an area that I I think we're all watching closely and wondering if there's going to be more than just the traditional turnover. And this suggests there may be more than just that going on. Now, it's not a clean house across the board. It's, you know, a handful of of calculated moves. I'll be interested to see once the AAA season is over and they're not going to end until October 3rd, same as the big leagues, which is unusual. Usually the entire minor league season ends in early September, but because they got off to a late start this year, they're letting them finish it out. So I'll be curious to see if there's any changes there as well. And also just within the front office, you know, there are people who work in player development that are not specific coaches, but they're in charge of kind of running the whole system. So I think we have an incomplete picture right now. I think by the time we get to maybe November, we're going to have a better idea of you know, are there are some wholesale changes going on or these more calculated bits and pieces here and there. But I do think it is going to be something that they're uh, focused on, and I would imagine that to some extent the moves that we heard about today are with that in mind and not just necessarily a standard end of season, we're going to make some changes kind of thing.
0: Yeah, you would think. I mean, it's hard to ignore what has happened to the Nationals farm system. It's hard to ignore how bad things have gotten from a player development standpoint, from a drafting standpoint for years. And look, as much as we love Mike Rizzo, I mean, this starts with him. So he's got to bear some of the blame for all of this. But I brought this up to you a few episodes ago. That sell-off in late July was so aggressive and so unapologetic. I mean, it really reeked of a recognition internally of we're screwed up. We got to fix some things here. And so I do think we're going to see some real changes. And I would tend to think what we had reported on Tuesday afternoon is the start of that. But like you said, you do get inevitable change. So I don't want to jump the gun on this either and say, oh, well, this means all these things we thought all along. Like, Let's go ahead and see. Now, to the point of guys not doing as well with the Nationals as maybe guys would do elsewhere and people getting worse or people... Not improving enough. We got this email from Fred Dan. You can always email us Natchatpodcast at gmail.com. It has to do with John Lester. writes Fred, why is Lester so much better with the Cardinals? Can we infer anything that ties back to the huge gap in developmental success between the two organizations? And we noted this uh, on the previous installment of the podcast. Lester has been better with the Cardinals. I mean, it's all relative, but John Lester, over 16 starts with the Nationals, had an ERA of 502. Lester over 10 starts with the Cardinals has an ERA of 4.02. And if you look at some of the peripherals, things like, you know, hard hit percentage allowed, things of that nature, exit velocity, the peripherals are better. Now they're not substantially better, but they are better. And it does make you wonder. Like are the Cardinals doing anything with John Lester that the Nationals did not do? Is this just, you know, Lester lucking into some things? I mean, the National League Central isn't something that overwhelms you. There are some really bad teams in the NL Central. Maybe he's uh, benefited from that. But, you know, you think about, okay, Lester's been better with the Cardinals than he was with the Nets. Max Scherzer has taken his game to another level with the Dodgers. You know, I think it's fair to ask the question of, are these organizations doing things with these guys that the Nationals were not doing with these guys?
1: Well, I don't know. I'd put those two in the same category. I think we talked about with Max the other day. I am sure that there was a reinvigoration on his part to go to L.A. on a team as loaded as that one and understand that, okay, he's now trying to help the defending champions get back into it and, and really lead that staff of stars into October. And he was pitching well for the Nationals, so he wasn't having a down year. Last year was a little different story, but I think Max was already on that path. Now was taking it beyond that with L.A., But I think that's a motivation thing more than anything else. Now, with Lester, I do think it's interesting. And, you know, I don't know the exact answer here. But the thing that does strike me about the situation he's in now is that he's working with a catcher named Yadier Molina and a pitching coach named Mike Maddox, two of the best at what they do. Maddox, of course, former Nationals pitching coach under Dusty Baker. And Yadier Molina, Hall of Famer and, you know, nobody knows pitching staffs better than Yadier so I do wonder if that has had a positive influence on him and if they are able to pick up on some things and help guide him through it. As guys who also saw him for years on the opposite side with the Cubs in the same division. For whatever reason John Lester here was never felt like he fully fit in with this team. And I don't know if that's because of the performance, maybe it's because he, you know, was had the thyroid surgery in the spring and then ended up on the COVID list to start the year, he just never found his footing. And it never really felt like he was ingratiated here with the Nationals. And for whatever reason, it's working for him in St. Louis. Good for him. Good for them. I'll be curious to see where it ends up and, and what this means for him that maybe his career isn't over yet. Maybe he's still got more to go. But I do wonder in that case, how much do Yadier Molina and Mike Maddox deserve some credit for what he's doing?
0: When the Orioles sold off in 2018, one of the things that really stood out to me was, okay, so they traded, as people may remember, Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to Atlanta and traded Zach Britton to the Yankees. And I believe Gaussman said this, and I think Britton may have said this too. They basically said, while with their new teams, boy, this team does things differently than the Orioles did. And they talked about how these teams really used analytics and how it was really helping them. And it really opened your eyes to... The Orioles were really behind on the modern way of doing things. And so these guys were able to, if not take their games to new levels, then at least be treated and handled in a way that they had not been handled previously. And if you look at Gosman, since he got traded from the Orioles, it hasn't always been smooth sailing. But, you know, he was a borderline bust with the O's. He was a very high draft choice and didn't really work out with Baltimore. You know, he's like a Cy Young candidate now with the Giants, who, of course, are all in on analytics. I think it does matter your organization. And I think there are organizations that can see things and incorporate things and open pitchers' eyes to things that other teams don't. Now, we know with the Nationals, I mean, they have an analytics department. It's not like they don't, but we also know that they're not viewed as one of the bigger teams when it comes to analytics. And I do wonder with Max, like the Dodgers are maybe the number one organization of baseball with this stuff. They have a huge baseball operations department, Andrew Friedman, is very well regarded. I don't think it's unfathomable that they maybe have said, hey, Max, look, you're great. You're a future Hall of Famer. We've noticed some things. We just want you to take a look at some things. And maybe that's helped him go from having a really good season with the Nationals to now having a season in which he's maybe the number one contender now for the National League Cy Young Award. I mean, he wasn't viewed that way with the Nats this year. He was having a good year, but not a year like that. I think it's just something to think about. And with Leicester, same kind of thing. Like maybe the Cardinals are doing things from a like a pitching science standpoint, we don't know these teams. Don't these teams don't like to talk about the things they do with this stuff? So you're you're left to kind of wonder and ponder. But I think it's fair to ask these questions, especially with the Nationals and all of the guys who, like we've said, have like gotten worse with them, not better. So yeah, we can't answer any of this definitively. But I don't think it's wrong to wonder about these things.
1: Sure, I think that's fair and you're right the Dodgers are at the forefront of a lot of stuff. I would just tell you from having covered Max Scherzer for almost 7 years. He thinks everything through himself. And I mean he he is in tune with everything. He knows every hitter's tendency. He knows what to throw when and how to sequence this and that and I'm sure he'll take any help he can get, but if there's anybody who doesn't need a lot of that, it's probably Max Scherzer. So I don't know how much they are contributing to it or not, but it is an organization that's very good at it. The Cardinals, I would say, are not necessarily known for their analytics. That is an old school organization. Mike Maddox is an old school pitching coach. Yadier Merlina is an old school catcher. So I don't know what, if anything, that has to do with what they're doing with Lester. But whatever the reason is, it's clear that Lester has figured something out. And let's give the Cardinals some credit here because they were scoffed at for making that trade. And look, it's still, Lane Thomas is still going to help the Nationals in the long run more than John Lester ever would. But we all said it. I, we're guilty of it too. We asked, what do the Cardinals need John Lester for? They're not even really in the race. But you know what? They are now. They've won 10 in a row and they've almost locked up the second wild card and they're going to end up facing the Dodgers or Giants in a wild card game. And who knows what might happen in a one game uh, playoff.
0: Yeah. And that's why you wonder, did the Cardinals see something that made them say, if we get our hands on this guy, we can fix some things because it never made sense to make a trade for a guy with an ERA plus five who looks shot. I, I mean, the conversation with Lester with the Nats was this guy's done, you know, and the Cardinals get him and he's been halfway decent for him. So I do wonder if St. Louis looked at Lester and said, hmm, you know, if the Nats just did X, Y and Z, they could get some decent production out of this guy. We'll do X, Y and Z and Lester's doing well. So we don't know. We don't know. But we do wonder. We do ponder. Well, you tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Big game for the Nats on Wednesday night. I know that sounds funny. Game three of a series for the Nats at the Marlins. But Josiah Gray is the Nats starting pitcher. Mark, Josiah Gray needs a good outing in the worst way. Four consecutive bad starts. Gave up five runs in five and a third innings in that 9-8 loss to Colorado at Nationals Park this Friday night. This has been one of the real bummers of the last few weeks, the decline of Josiah Gray. And I put decline in quotation marks. He's a young, evolving pitcher. But geez, uh, it would be nice if he did well on Wednesday night.
1: I agree. I do think he needs one just for the confidence boost. And the Marlins are a team that you should be able to do something against. Uh, You would really like to see it from him in this one. And Number one, limit the walks, which has suddenly become a problem for him. And then number two, hopefully limit the home runs, which we know has been a problem for him, even when he was pitching well, that was a problem. So this is a Marlins team that does not draw a lot of walks and does not hit a lot of homers. So you would think it's a good matchup for him, but let's see how he actually puts it into practice. And look, we're down to the final 11 games of the season. So you're talking two starts basically for everyone the rest of the way. Although I guess he maybe could have three. He could end up starting the last game of the season. But time's running out and you want to go into the winter with a good feeling after the way these last several have gone for him. And this would be a good place to start.
0: All Nationals Radio highlights on Natch Chat courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Natch Chat Podcast. And we're going to leave you now with another one of our World Series voice memos, Tales of October 2019. This one is an all-timer. This one comes to us from John Joseph Thomas. John, we wish you nothing but the best. We thank you for this. And uh, to everyone else listening, take a listen.
4: I apologize for the text to voice recording, but I had a tracheotomy five years ago because of cigarette smoking and speaking more than a few words is rather difficult. My 2019 postseason story involves my grandfather, who might be the unluckiest Washington baseball fan because even though he lived to be 95 years old he never saw a Washington baseball team win a World Series game. Fox was born October 11, 1924, which was the day after the Senators won the World Series and he died October 21, 2019, the day before the Nationals won their first World Series game. I was very close to my grandfather who was basically my dad. I never met my natural father because in June 1967, two months before I was born, dad was drafted into the army and was sent to serve overseas where he was killed in mysterious circumstances. Fox had no other children or grandchildren and raised me like his son. He took me to Senators Danes, though I don't really remember going because I was just four years old when the Senators left town. Fox was devastated and reluctantly became an Orioles fan. He took me to about 10-15 to 15 Orioles games each year. I remember him confronting Jim Palmer and threatening to punch him if he didn't give me an autograph. Fox was so happy when DC got the team in 2005. We went to a lot of games together at both RFK Stadium and Nats Park, especially in the years when the Nationals were not a good team. He loved getting cheap tickets. Potts was in great shape both physically and mentally right until the end and lived for the ups and downs of the Nats playoff runs. He would be devastated for a week or more after the Nats losses in those NLDS games. His favorite player was Bryce Harper and he loved his pure talent as a ballplayer. Much to my consternation, he became a mild Phillies fan in 2019, rooting for Bryce almost as much as he did the Nationals. Pops was super excited about the Nationals' wins in the Wildcard, Division, and NLCS series in 2019. He was also so excited about the prospect of seeing the Nats in the World Series, and I got his tickets to the first World Series game in Nats Park. Unfortunately, God saw fit to call Pops home before the World Series got underway. While he didn't get to see them win a World Series game, I will always have fond memories of our baseball time together.
3: Hudson has the sign now from Gomes. Coming set, looks like they want to go in. Here's the kick now. The pitch, fastball, is hit in the air to left center field. Robles going for it. He's under and waiting, and he makes the catch! He makes the catch! Bang! Soon done!